hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shift No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Welcome to today's episode We'll begin with our regular Books with Hooks segment in which agents extraordinaire Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira from PS Literary Agency read your query letters and opening pages in order to give you helpful critique. After which, we'll welcome today's special guest. Carly and Cece, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Let's begin with our first submission. Dear Alexandra, I'm querying you because of your work and interest in YA fantasy. I recently read and loved Ember in the Ashes. As such, I thought you might enjoy my young adult fantasy, Cursed in Flames, complete at 80,000 words, with strong female protagonists, sibling rivalry, and a splash of romance. It will appeal to fans of Three Dark Crowns or Red Queen. Cursed to resurrect in flames every time they die, twins Talia and Reyna are bound in servitude to the Emperor of Irodera, one as his champion in the gladiator ring and the other as the spectacle of the court. With each criminal and prisoner of war that Talia strikes down in the arena, she is one step closer to winning both her and her sister's freedom. But when she loses, it's Reyna who takes the fall, killed and resurrected for the palace's amusement. 
Feeling broken and used, Reina makes a fateful deal with the Emperor. If she battles her sister in the arena and wins, she gets to walk free, and if she loses, she will remain his forever. Unaware of Reina's deal, Talia dooms her sister to an eternity of servitude by casting the killing blow. When she learns of her sister's fate, Talia plots with a ragtag group of criminals to escape and bring the entire empire down with her. But when she is betrayed by someone she trusted, Talia has to decide if she can save her sister without seeing their future go up in flames. I'm a professional copywriter with a degree in journalism, as well as a member of SCBWI, whose long-term goal has always been to become a career YA novelist. I live in Nevada, and when I'm not writing client websites, you can find me with two dogs on my lap and a cat on my feet working on my next YA novel. To learn more about me, you can visit my website at smcopywriting.com. Thank you so much for your consideration. Sarah Marriott. Okay, Cece, why don't you start us off with Sarah Marriott's query? I really liked this query. I have to say, I thought that the concept was so original and so cool. I really liked it. It has to do with sisters, right? Which is something that I love and the stakes couldn't be higher. So I really like that. I'm wondering though, paragraph three, um, that starts with, with each criminal and prisoner of war. I'm wondering whether you're giving the goods away? Like, do we have to know, for example, that Talia wins? I don't, obviously I don't know when that happens in the story. So maybe you're not giving the goods away. Maybe the story mostly takes place after that, but I just sort of didn't want to know who was going to win or not. Right. Like I wanted that setup of the two sisters fighting each other with one, not knowing that she was fighting the other to be presented and, but not resolved. If that makes any sense, that would be my, like my big story note. And then I also wanted to say that the paragraph, the very last paragraph where she talks about herself, I really, really enjoyed that. I thought that was very well written Something I want to add in there as a writer is it always freaks me out when agents ask for a complete five page synopsis, including all the spoilers, because I'm always terrified they're going to read this document first. And to me, that takes all the tension out of the piece. Or does it not for you as agents? What do you think? So when I ask for a synopsis, it's because I want to read it after having read the pages. I am a big fan of no spoilers. If I'm in a writing discussion or something and someone's going like a writer's group and someone's going to mention spoilers, I I, I stop people. I go, no, no, don't tell me. So it, it is important that a writer knows how to write a synopsis because we need to know what the story beats are. It helps us go back and it helps us make sure that, you know, important um, elements of writing are there. But I certainly would never read one without having read the pages first, if it's something that I've invested in, of course. So for me, I think for a synopsis, there's two reasons that I use it. The first is if I kind of read maybe a partial or, you know, I get three chapters in or I get 50 pages in and I'm kind of like, I like it, but I'm not really sure where it's going to go. Or, you know, I'm, I'm like, do I want to invest the rest of the time in reading this book? Sometimes I will start to read the synopsis, but if I don't want the spoiler, like I won't go all the way to the end of the synopsis, but I will use it maybe as a tool to be like, how interesting is this book going to be? Or how, you know, where is this book going in a general sense? The second reason that I use that I like synopses is that a lot of times I, for unsolicited submissions, I don't always do the first read. Um, if I really like something, I might send it to an intern or an assistant to do a reader's report and they like that synopsis because when they have to write the report for me, they can use that synopsis to kind of help them write the reader's report. So then I, I think the suggestion there is to writers have that synopsis written so that in the event that it's asked for, it's not a rush job that you're trying to throw 
together at the end. So it, it is a helpful tool then for agents. Great. Carly, what do you think of this specific uh, query letter? I thought it was really, really well done. I mean, I always say how I like the the comps and the word count and the genre at the top. And a lot of YA authors don't tend to do this, but this YA author did that. So I that's one of the things that I like. I didn't have any sort of critical notes about this. I said, you know, good first paragraph. And then I kind of read the middle section. Then I said, you know, great author bio paragraph. I did feel like maybe the middle three paragraphs read a little bit too synopsis-y as opposed to pitch-y. I would have preferred it a little bit more on the side of pitch and less on the side of facts. But it's an interesting book. And I know how hard it is with fantasy to kind of drill it down to kind of explain, you know, what this book is about. So I understand why it is the length it is. But I think that yeah, a little bit more pitchy and a little bit less synopsis would be great. But um, I really think we're just like, I'm just trying to pick at things because I thought it was really great. Can you give us an example when you say more pitchy than synopsis? What are the things that you are looking for that differentiates it in terms of being pitch material. I mean, synopsis is just what happens, but in terms of pitch, what what advice do you have for writers there? I think it's a mix of things like building up to tension, building up to what the climactic moment is without kind of going over the edge in terms of telling us about the, you know, what the ending is. The other thing for me is it's a lot about language and it's just a different style of writing. Like writing a pitch is different than writing a synopsis. It's in a different headspace. It's marketing copy. It's salesy. And so just kind of putting it just scrap everything you've ever done and put on a brand new hat and that's your pitch hat, that's your business hat and then put that hat on when you need to write this. I suggest not referring to any previous materials. Like don't go back to your synopsis. Don't go back to your early materials. Don't go back to your overview notes and your character sketches. Like this is the end. The query should be always be written at the end. Therefore, you should be reflecting on a whole, you know, what you have accomplished and in kind of what what the book is from a salesy point of view. And so it shouldn't be something that is written early on or sourced from material that is based in synopsis or based in fact, it should be a sales tool. So I, sh- I just recommend just scrapping everything you've done and put on a brand new hat. That's what I do when I write pitch letters to editors. Sometimes I might, you know, look at the query, but I try to, sometimes I'll pick out a line or two from the query to when I'm rewriting, you know, my ultimate pitch for, for editors. So I might take a line or two, but I'm thinking of it as how can I sell this book? And so I just gravitate towards pitches that tend to be more salesy because I know that I have to write an editor's, a pitch letter to editors that needs to be salesy. So that's just the mindset that I'm in. Do you want to add anything to that, Cece? Well, a good tip might be to go to your favorite books and have a look at what their pitch copy looks like at the back of the book, usually, or at the jacket flap. And, you know, if it's a book you really love, take a look at how that, you know, the person who wrote that is teasing the reader. I think that teasing is a great verb to think about when when writing a pitch. But I, I absolutely agree with Carly. It's an entirely different skill. And it's a little mind boggling, like how much we expect of writers, right? Like we want these brilliant pages of 100,000 100, words of a novel. And then we also want a synopsis, which is very like cold and detached and stick to the facts. And we also want a pitch, which is marketing and salesy. And so this is all to say, I we know it's a really, really big challenge and we absolutely appreciate everything. And that's something I'm terrible at is that marketing side, but then I will seek expertise when it comes to stuff like that. So if you as a writer struggle at things like that, don't be afraid to either, you know, go for some kind of workshop that explains to you how to do that or reach out to 
somebody who you know who's better at positioning those kinds of things and getting like an, an external view on it as well. Okay, so let's move to the actual pages of Cursed in Flames. Cece, would you like to kick us off? Yes. So I have to say that these pages are incredibly well written. I have very little notes. So I love the setup. So what's happening here is that she is going through the kind of opponents that she usually fights and she divides them into three categories. I'm wondering if maybe she wouldn't name them sort of like not naming each individual, but naming each category sort of like, you know, there's the fool capital F who's the kind of person who thinks that they, they can maybe easily beat her or, or the smug capital S or the warrior, capital W, or I don't know. So I'm wondering whether, because she's done this so many times, wouldn't she have names for these people? And if she were to name them, not only would that make the story a little bit richer, not that it needs it, to be perfectly honest, but I, I think I'd like that. It would also allow the next few paragraphs to be condensed a little because she could say, you know, the man who stepped in was a, and then, you know, whatever name she was going to give to him. I think that naming types of people is is something that happens a lot, especially when you're trying to world build. You know, the example that comes to mind, I guess, is Harry Potter, which I think is is the classic example. So I, I would do that, I think. On page five, she mentions she had fought over a hundred men and women in her four years as the emperor's champion in the arena. It was simply that she was a woman and that fact seemed to seal her fate. In his eyes, it was no debate. Of course, she would lose. She's talking about, you know, the opponent who is super arrogant and, you know, is, is convinced that he will beat her because she's a woman. But hasn't she been doing this for four years? So, like, I assume he would know that she's a champion. Like, isn't he for a local person? And if he's not, if they're bringing people from other lands, I kept trying to imagine why he wouldn't know. I think that needs to be clarified just because I, that kind of made me wait, but wouldn't he know? That happens again in the, you know, right very beginning of the next page when she mentions the poor and the glory seeking criminals and conquered. Talia had seen them all. As far as anyone in the crowd was aware, entering the gladiator ring was voluntary, but Talia knew better. Like, wouldn't there be rumors if this is a society where, like, in order to have your past cleansed, you can go into the gladiator ring or, or, or in order to seek glory? Wouldn't you know that sometimes it's not voluntary? I guess I guess I'm wondering, I think there would be rumors. And then at the very end, the very last line, they were there every fight, always at the emperor's side as they watched her kill or be killed, right? Like, that's very impactful. I liked that so much. Um, it's almost like I, it made me think of Prometheus and Zeus, like Zeus punishing him by having him bound to a rock while the eagle had to eat his liver every day and then it would grow back, like it would regenerate. Um, except with her, it's like she, it's, she comes back. So it's, I don't know, I, I, I think that's a great way to end. I, it made me want to read more. I, I have very little notes, as I mentioned. It's all like line edit stuff because it's this is just really good. Kali, what did you think? I really enjoyed this piece as well. I really just had notes saying like, love this, great, good. <laughs> so I don't really have anything that I want to pick at. I just kind of want to build on what Cece was talking about. So that was the one thing that jumped out to me as well was this idea that we're setting the stage as her of her as this amazing gladiator. She's very confident, like nobody's nobody's beat her before. Um, she has all of these tools. And then all of a sudden, it's just the man that happens to be on stage at the moment that the book begins just happens to be the man that she thinks might beat her. Like I don't, I, I just don't know why she would have thought that again, as Cece said, that she's fought a hundred people. 
what is it about this person that makes her think that's the man that's going to beat her? I just didn't really get it. Other than the fact that he had a certain look in his eye. I don't know. That was the only thing that jumped out to me. But other than that, I thought that the world building was great. The scene setting was great. You know, I think we should obviously commend this author for that because that's one of the hardest things to do. Not only did you build this wonderful, rich scene, you also did character development and plot and stakes like that. This is a real accomplishment and it should be commended. Um, It's not one of the categories that I work in. So again, I, I can't be super kind of industry critical about it but you know I don't know what other what else is out there in terms of comps and, and and that sort of thing but in terms of you know just it being entertaining and me being a reader I thought it was very well done and just from my side in terms of being you know a creative writing instructor um, I thought this flowed wonderfully as well it was it was really really awesome there was a line here that I underlined because it was just one of those sucker punch moments it said better to die at the end of her sword than at the end of her mercy which was just absolutely amazing because she says what they didn't realize was that a swift death from her was a mercy so such a good line all I would have liked to have seen is some dialogue from the crowd because we have them chanting we have them screaming this bloodthirsty crowd the first bit of dialogue we have is on the fourth page and that is just the announcer's raised voice boomed across the arena welcome prior to that I want to hear the things that the crowd is screaming because it also helps contextualize so much of what's happening and I think that this piece would be made even better with some inner monologue so this is written in the third person there's only one instance that's put in italic And I don't think it was done properly because this isn't in a monologue. It says, she paused as her fingers drifted along the curved wood of the bow, elaborate engravings, making it a handsome weapon. So many weapons left out in the open, not only for her use, but for her opponents as well. And then this section goes in italics. So he wanted the show to be bloody. And there's a question mark. I'm not sure why that's in italics, if it's for emphasis, but if it's in a monologue, remember that in a monologue needs to be written in the present tense because it's that character's thoughts in that moment presently happening. So it should be, so he wants the show to be bloody if that is in a monologue. And I think the piece would be served by putting us in her mind, in her direct thoughts often as possible because it just brings us that much closer to her because this is written third person close and in a monologue just pulls us in that much closer. But that's my only feedback there. Dear Carly Waters, sometimes unbearing family secrets can give you answers more deadly than you were hoping for. My name is KF and I'm excited to submit the next great chilling adult mystery to your query inbox. WHS is my debut novel at 99,000 words that will ideally sit beside the works of Wendy Webb on bookshelves. It is a fresh take on a ghost story, weaving together intricate elements of history, ancestry, mystery and a different spin on time travel. It'll take you on an emotional journey between the present and the past, told in multiple points of view. Full of eerie vibes, twisty connections and heartbreak, it'll give you all the feels and keep you guessing through the pages. This is a story born from an experience I had as a teenager. It stands alone but has strong series potential as a second book is in the works. Although 40-year-old descendant Jennifer is an unwilling medium afraid of ghosts, she's compelled to help catch her 19th century ancestor, Jared's murderer, when she learns Jared's been haunting her family for decades. 
To do it, she must confront her worst fears, communicate with the ghosts she tries so hard to ignore, and travel to 1859 through their fragmented memories. Jared won't rest until she buries deadly family secrets and discovers the truth. If she doesn't, her daughter is his next haunt. I've chosen to query you for this project because I've read that you enjoy representing mysteries, suspense and thrillers and these are primarily the genres I write. I've seen so much of your content on Twitter and more recently Instagram and I love how much you and PS Literary champion clients work. I'm looking for an agent who will help build my writing career through several projects and to have a fellow Canadian representing my books would be phenomenal. When I read that you and Cecilia were going to be hosting Critiquing segments on the podcast The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, I was excited to submit my query and first five pages. For more than 25 years, I've written countless works in fiction, including novel-length projects, short stories, and flash fiction. Last year, I became serious about my lifelong dream of publishing and set to work on this new story. The manuscript is polished and ready for submission, should you request it, and I'm willing to work with your agency to transform it into a saleable book. I'm ready to step out of my comfort zone and introduce my stories to the world, and I hope you will be the one to help me get there. Many thanks, author KF. Carly, would you like to then kick us off? So this one is called A Mystery. I kind of highlighted that in my notes because I didn't know if mystery was the right categorization for this. So, you know, I have some, you know, questions about that, uh, but I'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about the the pages. Um, the next thing I noted was one of the things that I don't love in a query letter is somebody telling me how I'm going to feel because... It is so personal how I'm going to feel. And when I read 200 queries in a row of everybody telling me how I'm going to feel, I mean, I just don't believe them. (laughs) So it's up to me to like decide what I think that what I think the book is going to be. And so when I get things like themes or somebody telling me you're going to love it, I don't know. I just, I just start to question that. So I just, so the line that stood up to me was full of eerie vibes, twisty connections and heartbreak. Um, it'll give you all the feels and keep you guessing through the pages. So I would just take that out. I mean, that's just my personal taste. You know, I feel like I, I will decide that as the agent, you know, if it gives me all the feels. So, you know, I just don't need to be pitched that way. But and that's just a little personal preference thing. Um, the next thing I noted was this person says, um, this is born from an experience I had as a teenager. And then we get to the next paragraph and then we start talking about very serious a ghost story and time travel. So then I was like, what part of this happened to you as a teenager? Was it the time travel or I don't know, like it just threw me off a little bit. So that just kind of caught me off guard. And the thing that I want in a query is just to be like immersed in the moment. And anytime a query letter like takes me out of the moment and I'm like, like, you know, just having questions. What is this about? Who is this for? It it just brings me out of the moment. And I just want to be in the moment. I don't want to be brought into the moment. So those were the the big things for me. But ultimately, I'm very interested in ghost stories. So I think that this is something that uh, is interesting to me. I would just probably have another look at the query uh, from, from that perspective. And how can you kind of tell the most of the story that you can in a way that doesn't bring us out of the moment. Because I also found with this query, there was only kind of one paragraph that was actually about the book. And it was like one introductory paragraph, one short one about the book. And then there is one about kind of essentially two author paragraphs, I would say. Um, So to me, it was just not as much about the book as I would, as I would. Great. Cece? 
Yeah, I agree with everything Carly just said to like echo her great thoughts. I feel like the second paragraph that starts with my name is, I almost feel like you could cut everything in that paragraph after the word bookshelves, like bookshelves period, like everything that comes after you can basically cut because you're telling us there's going to be a fresh take on a ghost story weaving together elements of, and then you have so much history, ancestry, mystery, different spin on time travel. I'll take you on a journey. Like, I think it would be more effective if you told us, you know, this is your debut, 99, it may be even fresh take on a ghost story. Cause I like that line, but then, you know, tell us about Jennifer, tell us what's going to happen in the book. Because I mean, imagine if someone were, I guess, you know, to, to the writer, imagine if someone were to tell you, so I, I read this really great book. I, I really want to tell you about it. You're going to love it so much. It explores elements of female friendship and sisterhood and, and what to do about forgiveness and how could you possibly forgive someone from a mistake? And it's not that you wouldn't want to hear these things, but you're like, okay, but what is the story about, right? Like we don't read a book to, to explore themes. We read a book to be entertained by a story. While we're reading a story, we are, we're also exploring themes, but that's not why we opened up the book, right? Like it's not a psychology book. It's, 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 it's a story. It's a novel. So I think it's great that you know these things though. Like I do want to say that I think it's great that you've thought about what sorts of themes your novel is exploring and what sorts of elements are there. That's amazing. Keep that information. Just don't, just don't add it to the query letter, right? Like save it for when you're talking about your book in a publicity call or something. That's what I would say. And yeah, and I can tell that this author is someone who's very enthusiastic to pitch. And I think that's always wonderful. What we do is, is so special because we get to be around people's passion. Carly, what have you got to say about the first pages? I overall felt like it was choppy and I'm going to kind of explain why. So for me, this is an example of a time when we don't need the prologue. And I'll tell you why. So one of the things that happened with the prologue is that we don't know anything about the story yet. And sometimes prologues are very presumptuous that we feel things for the characters that we just can't, it's not possible for us to feel yet because we haven't met them. And so things like this, this prologue has rhetorical questions and just, um, you know, just a lot of things that we just don't understand yet and have no context. And I think this is an example of a prologue that people would skip because they just don't have any context for it. So part of this prologue says, you know, I've been roaming for what seems like decades. They're saying, she's saying they're looking for somebody. Her name is Elizabeth. This is her likeness. Please, please. Have you seen her? Can you help me? Like, I kind of liken this to I'm walking down the street and somebody like runs up to me. And they're a stranger and they're like, please, can you help me? And you're like, I don't know how to feel right now. Like, do I want to help you? Are you a stranger? You're coming up to me and yelling me about, you know, somebody missing. Like, you know, that just puts me off guard. It's not that I don't want to help this person, but why should I help this person? You know, and it just felt like a little bit aggressive to me almost in a way that I don't, I, there's no context for why this person is coming at me aggressive. So, so um, it just felt like a lot. And it's not that there's anything bad about the writing. It's just that I just don't think this is the place for that uh, prologue. So as soon as I got to chapter one, we are in 1994. So we're making huge jumps here, right? We're going for the point of view, presumably of a ghost. And then we're coming to 1994. Again, big time shift here. So one thing I did want to note, which is very small, is that this person um, uses the word autumn, which is obviously another word for fall. I actually thought the character's name was autumn at first because autumn is also a name. So I would just say, maybe just call it fall. It could just be me, but that was something where I'm like, oh, is this person's name Autumn and we're in 1994? And then in terms of punctuation, so we are having a lot of like question marks and exclamation marks. I find a, most people who think they need exclamation marks don't need exclamation marks. So I would just, again, take a little bit of a look at any rhetorical questions. Again, that's a question mark that we might not need and um, any exclamation marks. For example, the sentence was every ounce of her soul was willing to sit up, stand up, run, speak, scream, anything 
saying exclamation mark. If you're saying things like, you know, every ounce of her soul and scream and run, I'm like, I'm already feeling a little bit intense. So I don't need an exclamation point at the end of that. And so this was where I start to feel like this isn't a mystery at all. We have a line called her lips felt sewn shut like they did for the dead. Like I'm starting to feel like this is a horror book. I'm just not really feeling like this is a mystery. And so that's what I was saying when I was talking about the query. I'm like, you know, not, not really sure if we know exactly what the market is for this book or what the cops are. I'm just, you know, not too sure. Having a little bit of, you know, questioning about that. The other note I had on the page after that um, was the use of the word loony bin ending halfway catatonic for the rest of her life. It felt like a little bit insensitive to the mental health conversation. I just wouldn't use the word loony bin. I would probably direct a client of mine not to use the word loony bin. So just being kind of sensitive to that sort of thing. And then we jump to 2009. And this is when I figured out that autumn wasn't a person. Autumn was a season. Uh, And then we have a little bit of telling here. So we have Jennifer had her first daughter, Caitlin in 2008 at the age of 29. Caitlin was now a year old. So I actually feel like this is where the book begins personally. It's because I feel like it's very choppy to go from point of view of a ghost point of view of a child and then we get to Jennifer later on so I personally felt like if this is an adult book this is probably where the book should start and then this gets really creepy like again I think this is a horror book the the baby presumably the one-year-old see the ghost is what we're presumed to believe and so I'm like I have the hairs raised on the back of my neck and so that's why I don't think this is a mystery I actually think this is a horror I don't know where the book is going obviously and to me horror doesn't have to be gory right like the book um like Mexican gothic like that was called horror and a lot of that is just creepiness right it's not actually horror so yeah I I would think kind of gothic noir even because gothic noir has got elements of melodrama it's got elements of the supernatural etc so Mm -hmm. certainly in terms of that classification definitely Yeah, I would say even just like a gothic ghost story or like gothic horror ghost or like mixing those. And I think the word gothic is trendier. I think the word horror is a bit trendier. And so mystery to me just didn't really feel like it really categorized this book. So that brings me back to the query. And I would say, figure out some comps for this and then figure out where its place in the market is. But it's not like there's anything wrong with the story. I'm just like a little bit confused on what the market is. And I think that the book doesn't know where it starts. But ultimately, I love ghost stories. Cecilia, what did you think of the opening pages? So I agree with Carly. We read five pages and we got two different points of view. So the ghosts and then Jennifer's and it spanned like 2009 and 1994. So it's just, I think it's too much jumping. Like line breaks are fine. Jumping is fine. But in the beginning, and this is a personal taste, but I do think that it's it's shared by a lot of people. I think it's really important that you hook us in a scene, immerse us in that scene, because the beginning of the novel, you're seducing the reader. You're telling the reader, come here. I want to tell you something. Um, and you're going to want to stick around to, to listen to this, to find out what happens. And it's really hard to do that if we're jumping, because it's, you know, it's, it's like walking into three different doors. Like, you don't, eventually my attention span is going to give give out so i i would not recommend starting like this i would i would suggest to you know pick pick one place to start and then really sticking to it i also don't think we need the prologue really there wasn't anything in the prologue that added to the story i think i think we know that the ghost is looking for someone based on jennifer's perspective i also noticed that there was very little dialogue i mean if the baby talking counts then then that's dialogue i guess i guess a toddler maybe because she's talking but whatever like i would have liked to see a little bit of dialogue just because i think it's you know five pages we should probably have some and i also 
also very much agree with the comment about the exclamation points and question marks. There's actually a great memoir, I think, by Madeleine Blay, I think, called To the New Owners, a Martha, Martha's Vineyard memoir, where she says that exclamation points are a form of verbal littering and everyone only gets 20 to use in their lifetime. And I thought that was one of the funniest lines ever. And I agree. Not that you only get 20 necessarily if you're writing lots of books. She's a journalist. So I guess in her case, it's different. But yes, like toned out on the exclamation marks. I agree. And definitely let the narrative do the heavy lifting or let the dialogue itself do the heavy lifting. You shouldn't be depending on punctuation to be getting meaning across for you when when that should be coming through in the actual words themselves. Something that you just said now, Cece, about hooking a reader earlier. And I actually laughed this morning when I read the New York Times because this is now bled over even into music. You know, so as writers, we are being told that readers' attention spans are not what they used to be, thanks to all kinds of distractions. And I read something this morning in the New York Times that said about how music is changing now compared to how it was in 2010. People are going for things that are wilder and less predictable. And it says here that many artists want to get to the hook of a song faster, delivering a variety of catchy sections rather than one repeating chorus to keep people listening, right? So if this is coming across in music, it's definitely coming across in literature. Yeah, I've heard that in music as well, that the songs are actually shorter now. You, you're Like the radio says they won't play things that are usually over four minutes. So pretty much every song these days is, is three minutes long. Okay, we're now moving on to our next query letter. Dear Bianca, Cecilia and Carly, on the fringes of Utopia, a renegade with a quirky robot learns that predicting the future doesn't mean you'll survive it. Subsistence engineer Willoy Kapul is on the verge of success with the robot she designed to help people contribute to society. But a powerful earthquake damages the lab and her mentor goes missing. She rescues Pramesh Patel, a scientist who reveals his secret invention, seven magical avatars capable of predicting the future. He offers to help find her missing mentor. As they scour the net for data, the pair unknowingly activate the defenses of a dangerous group of saboteurs. As destruction escalates and time runs out, Willoy and Pramesh must unmask the saboteurs and restore the planet's environmental balance. Willow's Future is my debut, a standalone adult science fiction novel with series potential. Complete at 95,000 words, it would appeal to fans of The Murderbot Diaries and The Prey of Gods. I'm a Boston-based academic focused on climate policy and enviro-futurism. My science fiction and fantasy stories appear in anthologies under New Suns and Land of Dust and Bone by editor Chris Van Dyke and 2047 short stories from our common future by editor Tanya Biscard. My non-fiction writing on sustainable technology has appeared in journals and book chapters. Many thanks for your consideration. E-R. So this is one of the categories that I am not kind of professionally proficient in. So I will start with that. Um, science fiction fantasy is not one of my um, agented categories and, and not something I read 
for fun. So, um, so take everything with a grain of salt, of course. So ultimately I didn't have a lot of feedback on this again, because I felt like this is probably suitable for this category. We have 95,000 words. That's a good word count. We have some comps. I don't know the comps, but you know, somebody that does work in science fiction fantasy might know the comps. I thought that the author bio paragraph was good, um, gives us a little bit of an understanding of where they're coming from, because in the professional sense, you know, they work in climate policy and environmental futurism, which again, plays into, um, you know, everything that's happening with the story. So that's an example of somebody's professional career having an influence on their writing. So that's an example of when you would want to talk about your job in a query letter, because I know we don't, you know, not everybody needs to do that. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of feedback other than, you know, structurally, it, it fits all of the needs of a query letter. Awesome. What did you think, Cece? I should also add that I'm not super well-versed in this in this genre. It was really well written. I got I got a sense of what the story would be about. And I also got a sense of the urgency in the story. She, um, The author, ER, makes it clear that as destruction escalates and time runs out, Willoy and Pramesh must unmask the saboteurs and restore the planet's environmental balance. So, so I like that because it's, again, not well-versed in the genre, but I, I do I do feel that that sense of urgency is needed, um, especially with world building. So that's that was really good. I, I also really enjoyed the paragraph about, about the author. It's, it's it's a short, well-written, polished query letter. So, so good job. Wonderful. Carly, let's dive into those opening pages. So the pages for me felt like maybe we were trying a little bit too hard. And I understand the balance, especially when we're building a world that it seems like there's a lot to do. And I think as a writer, you kind of want to prove you could do it all. Like I can build this world. I can introduce these characters. I can tell you what my plot's about. And it's very complex. And it felt like it was a lot of trying. And I would just like it to look a little bit more effortless because it does pull us out as the reader when we're kind of having to second guess certain lines. Again, I, I wasn't too sure. Like a couple of things that jumped out to me on the first page were things like the woman was called like the gamine as like a noun. And to me, like gamine, I think is an adjective. So I just felt a little bit objectifying of women a little bit when we're talking about the gamine, like the gamine what, right? So anyway, that was something for me that stood out. We talk a lot about eyes. So we have like somebody has coal lined eyes, meaning like eyeliner on their eyes. And then we have somebody else has red rimmed eyes. So there just felt like a lot of duplicate of eye stuff to me. And then I also felt on the first page, we were doing a lot of telling. So for example, we have a paragraph that says protect from regular earthquakes, climate degradation, and planetary instability, ubiquitous devices, anticipated and patched disintegration, nonstop in the city's dome. So it's like trying to explain what the AIs do. We generally know what AIs do at this point, like we're that far along in our <laughs> technological development as a society, where if you just said something was an AI, like we can kind of guess get what an AI is, because you don't want to have to pull us out of the story to explain what this particular AI does. And if you have to explain what this particular AI does, then is this the right place to do it on page one? Like, I'm not really sure. I don't, I'm not convinced that it is. And another example of this was like the, the social value calculations. And then they have to explain like SV, they use a short form SV. So again, just it pulls us out of the story a little bit. And, and if we can just find a way to kind of blend it in a little bit more um, and only explain what we need to know at that time. Again, I understand this is a push pull with with science fiction fantasy. And then a little bit more kind of talk about clothes, like dress to impress. Like, why are we talking about dress to impress when we're in the middle of an earthquake? I don't know. Again, like felt a slight objectification in that sense of like talking about clothes. I, I didn't really think that was necessary. I just felt like 
if this is a book about science fiction fantasy, I don't know. I, I didn't really feel it was necessary to get into kind of flows. So especially in the urgency, I just know if I'm in the middle of like an earthquake and my world, you know, crumbling, I don't know. I, maybe I would be thinking about my clothes because I love clothes. <laughs> but I, I would assume I'd be working on about, you know, trying to solve this this science disaster. So that's my take. Again, not uh, not well versed in this category. Cece, I think this is a perfect example of how subjective reading is. I actually flagged the two moments where the narrator explained things as moments that I enjoyed because like, like the author was offering us context with emotion because the first example, example, Willoy chilled, imagining the AIs missing or damaged. And then in the second example, the system was impossible to gain. So she was fr- frustrated with that, right? So it's it just co- goes to show the subjectivity. And now I, I, do, I do agree that it takes us out of the story a little, but I also don't know that I would have understood how Willoy feels about these things without that. So I don't know. I think if you could do it even more seamlessly, that would be amazing. So I my notes on this are, are the following. There's a lot of referring to people by in a way that that's not their name like the the gamine is an example her companion and then her companion again in the same sentence in the third paragraph i think that on page end of page two the pouty bureaucrat jerked her arm free are we still talking about valine we are right so if we are just call them by their name because there's enough world building and enough confusion that happens with with science fiction that you do not need to add any more ways of referring to someone. So I I would very much urge someone to call characters by their names and, and stick to that. Although again, someone else might read this and, and feel entirely different because it is super subjective. So that's m- one note. And then, so on page three, when Willoy tried to guess the SV, the social value score she'd get when her robot launched, I think that she would guess a number, right? Like I think that because this is so normal to the character, she would probably be like, oh my gosh, will I reach, I don't know, 200? Will I reach, could I possibly reach 250, right? So I think that the specificity could be there. I'm also super confused. And this was like my big note. Page three, I thought the planet was disintegrating or, or utopia was. So the emotional tone slash urgency of this is, is unclear to me. Like based on the beginning of the novel, the very first sentence, utopia is disintegrating. It felt like they were in danger. They felt like human existence was potentially threatened. And I guess then the conversation became almost like casual and filled with banter. Like they were talking about her career ambitions and what she would accomplish. And, you know, could you help me do this? And it's like, I guess if it's that urgent, wouldn't, wouldn't she be rushing to do something about it? Um, so then on page four, you know, in the biozone next door, a group of elites on a guided tour screamed as shards of broken glass fell into the curated garden of Earth's former abundance. So, okay, people are screaming. So it is urgent. So then I guess I was waffling right back and forth. Like, is this, is this? urgent or not. I'm so confused. And then at the end of page four, so, okay, I had previously assumed, and this is on me, that Willoy was there to fix something, right? I thought it was her job. But then she meets the man with the short red beard and he's like, no, you have to leave. This is a restricted area. So then if she's trespassing because she's curious or nosy or whatever, I like that. But like, maybe we should know that because we're in her head. I just, I guess my big note is this tonal inconsistency. Is is it urgent or not? And also what is Willoy's role in fixing this issue, if any, right? Right? Like, is she just being nosy? I, I don't know. I think the biggest challenge in science fiction is getting the reader to become invested. After all, we tend to become invested with something because it's familiar to us in some way. And it's really hard to have something in common in a world that's so different from ours. Like, it's totally, totally different. So my big picture suggestion here would be to have the opening tension in the first pages be something very relatable to anyone, a a universal human emotion. Like maybe she's before the committee that's going to approve her robot and they tell her no, and then she's, or she's nervous, or or like, it has to be something that 
that is very micro, not something that is about utopia disintegrating. I think that if you start with something micro, an emotion that Willow is struggling with, and then you, at the end of the chapter, we find out that utopia is disintegrating, then we're a bit more invested because we started with that character and that those feelings, those emotions are immediately relatable and and we, we, we empathize with the character. And then this, the, the world building could be in the backdrop, right? Like, because if she, in the example I gave, if she were before a committee presenting her robot, she'd be nervous, she'd be really excited, she'd be terrified. And, and we would know that because she's presenting a robot to a committee, we would get a little bit of the world building in there. And then maybe the last sentence could be Utopia is disintegrating, the last sentence of the first paragraph, I mean. I don't know. I, I would suggest start with micro, go with macro. Never start with macro. It's, it's, it's asking too much of the reader. I agree with you there, Cece, especially in terms of the world building, because when you have to interrupt a lot of action, because this scene should be incredibly fast paced and any kind of exposition any kind of description, explanations slows down the pacing completely. So if the reader can have an understanding of this world and these concepts before all the action takes place, you don't have to keep stopping to explain what certain things are so that the piece keeps up the momentum and the pacing without those descriptions. So I think starting, um, like you say, on the micro will also allow a bit of world building in a much more organic way so that the pacing can pick up when it needs to. Thank you so much to both of you again for your time. Once again, I just want to thank everybody for putting their work out there and sharing it with us. I know it's brave, especially as people have been listening along to previous episodes um, and still submitting your work. So we commend you. We look forward to this every week and we're so glad you guys are listening along with us. Thank you. Just a reminder of a few things that we've got coming up. Carly is teaching a session called How to Write a Nonfiction Proposal That Sells. That's on the 29th of April at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom. Go to her Instagram page for the link in the bio to register. I've got a course coming up on the 7th of April from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time called Taking Your Writing to the Next Level. So if you have a first draft of a novel that you are now beginning to revise, this is the course for you. I give you a checklist of all the things you should be looking for, all the things that will help elevate your writing and help capture an agent's attention. Go to my website, biancamaray.com to register there. And if you're in a different time zone, don't worry, the course will be recorded and you will still have access to me in terms of questions. And I'll be critiquing the first five pages of whatever it is you want to send me. Also, CC will be offering one-on-one -on -one meetings and critique services via Manuscript Academy, which is a year-round online writers conference. You can find more details at manuscriptacademy.com forward slash Cecilia dash Lira. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. And now let's move to the segment with today's guest. She's a South African storyteller and qualified geologist. She's among the 2020 Mail and Guardian's top 200 young South Africans. Her work has been published in a ton of journals, just too many to mention. Her debut collection of short stories titled If You Keep Digging was published in 2019 by Blackbird Books, a really kick-ass South African indie publisher. The book made the Brittle Paper Top Debut Awards of 2019. 
Her short stories have made finalists for the Ritivism Short Story Prize, the Noma Awards for Speculative Fiction, the Africa Book Club Competition, and the Brittle Paper Award for Fiction. She is currently working on a novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Coletto Mapai. Coletto, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Coletto and I have been chatting for ages and ages since her anthology, uh, her collection of short stories came out in 2019. We've been chatting a lot on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter. So it's wonderful for her and I to finally get to chat in real life. Now, Coletto is the master of the short story and her short oh. Yes, yes, yes. And her short story collection, if you keep digging, was really, really masterful. I got to read it and give a bit of a review for dear Mr. Hemingway. And uh, in reading Coletto's work, something came to mind that Hemingway himself said, and it's something that I struggle with, is he said, prose is architecture. It's not interior design. For me, all my writing is interior design. I've written a handful of short stories in my life, the last one of which was 16 and a half thousand words. So clearly I did not get the memo on short stories. <laughs> so, so Coletto, as a master of the short story, tell us a bit about the form. What attracted you to short stories in the first place? Um, I wouldn't call myself a master. I'm still learning as everybody is. But what attracted me to short fiction, I think I've written a novel before I began writing short stories and I thought it wasn't very good. <laughs> I knew I needed a lot of training. I knew I needed to work on my writing. So I started writing short stories. And firstly, I because I didn't read a lot of short stories before then, I went to local journals such as Brittle Paper, the Galahari Review, Munyari, and all those stuff. So I read quite a lot of those short stories and the excitement just grew in me. And so I started a writing for the short story collection. The first story competition I entered was the Writerism in 2017. Yeah, then I made the long list for some reason. <laughs> So from then on, I entered other competitions. I don't know. I just, I don't know how I do it, to be honest. <laughs> if someone asks me, how do I write a short story? I'm like, okay, just start, just start. And from reading and writing continuously, just going to be good at it in the end. Well, let's talk about the things that inform your writing and the things that inspire you. Because your work is, you know, it's deeply, deeply human, but it's also, there's that political element to it. So what I loved about your work is how it looks at South Africa today, the political landscape in terms of how women are treated in terms of racism, etc. So do you, when you sit down to write a short story, is it the things that you feel passionate about, the things that piss you off? Like when you sit down to write, what is the thing that informs what you wanting to write about? Well, before I wasn't aware that I'm such activist or a political person or a socialist or whatever. I just started writing and realized way later that I address uh, social issues that are very common in South Africa or very much problematic in South Africa, like racism, homophobia, mental health, unemployment. So yeah, because I'm a so young South African, I have the first-hand experience of what's occurring in my country. And from, I think, history, 
in general informs South Africans' political atmosphere. I mean, the things that are happening right now are due to the fact that apartheid just ended in 1994 and we're still navigating our lives through this new world that we're in. In terms of your age, Kalitza, were you are you considered a born free in South Africa, somebody who was born after the end of apartheid, or were you born while the apartheid regime was still active? No, it was two years after the regime ended. I was born in 1992. So yeah, we can sum a born free. And that's such an interesting perspective in South Africa because, you know, for our listeners, apartheid was legalized in South Africa from the mid-50s. Uh, it was only officially, officially disbanded in 94 when Nelson Mandela became president, but certainly things started to turn around sort of uh, 90, 91, 92. And there's been a a lot written about South Africa during apartheid by writers who who experienced it, um, writers, many of which had to go into exile. And then there came this time in South Africa's history when apartheid was, you know, dismantled. And in South Africa, there's a term for people who were born after the end of apartheid. It's that, you know, born free label. And so many South Africans, and this is where I get so frustrated because this is very much a white South African thing that they go, well, apartheid's over now. It's over, so just get over it. Move on. Why must you keep blaming everything on apartheid, etc.? But of course, the legacy of that lives on for so long. If you consider, you know, just consider the US environment. We are how many years, you know, after the civil rights movement, and yet the Black Lives Matter movement is still so necessary in the US. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just talk about that, Kaleto? I mean, yeah, it still angers me because just generally the South African, uh, how our economic um, social life was designed. It's just unfair. A lot of things are still not equal. Nothing is equal. <laughs> I'll say just nothing is equal. Still, we are still unequal in different ways. Like if two graduates a white graduate and a black graduate graduate at the same time, the white graduate will get a job much quicker than the black graduate. And I'm one of those people. I graduated like five years ago and I got only one internship, which ended in like a year. And still now I don't have a, a geology job. So that's how crazy things are. But I know some of the white graduates have jobs right now and have more experience than I could (laughs) wish for. So yeah, there's that. And let's talk about what you were saying in terms of the homophobia. And, you know, let's talk about the misogyny as well, because South Africa is a very patriarchal society. And I say this, it doesn't matter which culture of South African society, it doesn't matter which language or what color you are in South Africa, you know, the patriarchy is is huge in South Africa. And so women's rights are something that women in South Africa have to keep fighting for and gay rights as well. And these are things that also inform your writing. Yeah, I consider myself a feminist. I mean, some things just makes you angry. I mean, the femicide rate in South Africa is very, very, very infuriating. Like, and they con- if you have a normal conversation with a Black male in South Africa, you'll get that we still have a long way to go because they consider bidding a woman a normal thing like it's so normal to them and you're like seriously this is how every other black South African male thinks about this and they defend themselves they are bystanders they don't involve themselves when it comes to protests when women are protesting they either 
ignore them or they make fun of them. Like there was a protest in, at Euros University, I think, in 2017 or 2016. And because the women took out their clothes to make statements, they made fun of their bodies. Yeah, like, it's so ridiculous. It's very infuriating. And I think that very much informs my writing. I write from rage. I write from frustration. And even though I write about these things, they don't get solved or resolved. I don't know how to deal with them other than writing about them. I love that. Writing from a point of rage. That just it gave me goosebumps. And the thing is, is that as women in South Africa, like you say, with the huge femicide in South Africa, I think the violence against women and children in South Africa is amongst the highest in in the world. In, in the world, yeah. And, you know, th- this obviously comes down to grassroots cultural issues. You know, it's that women's rights are not recognized in South Africa, that women are, you know, subjugated, that their opinions are not held in high regard, that women can just be beaten and treated however the hell men want to in South Africa. And, you know, it's not like women can report it to the police because this is something I try to speak to people about in North America and they go, well, why don't women in South Africa just report to the police or or why don't they leave or why don't they lay a charge? I mean, we know that women, when they report these issues, they get laughed at or they just get turned away. The case get lost. Like we're not taken seriously. It's like we are just a joke. So yeah, I think that's why women, some women don't report these things for fear of being judged. It's very ridiculous for someone to ask, why don't they leave? You know, abusive relationships are you never understand them until you're in them. So I don't think I don't think we should judge or as a, as a why they don't leave and why don't they report these things because we've never been in that position. If you've never been in that position, you'll never understand. But also in terms of purely financial position, you know, if you're a woman who has not been able to get a job, who does not earn her own income, you know, you are reliant on this male relationship yeah. in your life for, for an income, in which case there is absolutely no possibility of you leaving because we, where do you go? How do you financially support yourself as well? So again, that whole socioeconomic disparity just reinforces that for women. And I think it's been made that much harder now um, during COVID. I know that all the AIDS activists that I've spoken to in South Africa have been so frustrated during COVID because so many of the resources that were being spent on educating people about AIDS and HIV have now had to be diverted in terms of COVID. And we've certainly Mm -hmm. seen domestic abuse cases go up astronomically all over the world, but also uh, in South Africa, especially during lockdowns. That's very true. Uh, And I think with women who are financially capable to get in this situation and they don't know how to get out of them. But it's the women that are restrained or don't have jobs or power in their families that get trapped in this situation and they don't know how to get out of them. So coming back to your short stories, when you put together your first collection, because something that I hear often from literary agents is that it's difficult to sell a short story collection to a publisher that publishers want novels and many writers that I know who write short stories will submit a collection of short stories and they'll get told, oh, we really like it. Come back to us when you've written a novel. So can you tell us about your experience of publishing? Because as well, Blackbird is an independent publisher in South Africa. Tabiso is the head of that publishing house and she's absolutely amazing. Could you explain to us how you got your collection together? 
together and how you got that published? I was aware of the notion that you must write a novel first and publish a short story collection later. A lot of writers do that, especially in Africa. But I knew that I wanted to debut my writing through a short story collection because that's what I know I'm good at. So I think I was lucky because Tabiso was aware of my writing through the short story competitions that I've entered and the journals that I've written for. So she was aware of my writing. I think that's one way an emerging writer can start their career. They can set their short stories to journals. They can enter short story uh, competitions in order to get their name out there and also to build their profile. I mean, when a publisher looks at your work, they want to know that someone else liked it before they did. So yeah, you have to make sure that people know you, you know, important people know you. So yeah, I think she knew. That's why I submitted to her because she knew me through this uh, Facebook. I think I've been announcing stuff on Facebook. She knew about my work. So when I submitted to her, she replied about two months later to say she was interested. So yeah, I think the best advice I could give an emerging writer who isn't established yet is to write for journals first and just story competitions and see what they could learn from that. And in terms of the work that you submitted to Tabiso, did you submit a whole bunch of stories and then she kind of crystallized it down to the ones that were published in If You Keep Digging? Did she say these were themes that we want to stick with? Were they ones that you had to add to the collection that you'd already submitted to her? How did that whole editing process work? Well, lucky for me, I wrote stories that are very similar in terms of theme because in a short story collection, the story need to interlink or need to be similar in terms of um, the kind of issues that you're trying to cover in the work. So yeah, I think for me, there wasn't a story that wasn't published that I submitted. There were 11 stories in the beginning and when it was final that they were going to print the book, she said that I must add another story. I think the final story that I added was Growing Caterpillars. It wasn't in the beginning so I just added it later. And half of the stories were already published. So I wrote new stories and already the ones that are published, I combined them in the manuscript. Let's talk about like the own voices movement, Coletso, because what I find incredibly frustrating is I speak to a whole bunch of book clubs and they always say to me, please suggest other South African writers. And so, you know, your work is one that I constantly recommend, but it's so frustrating because it's only available on Amazon Kindle in North America. Blackbird Books is a South African indie publisher. So the actual physical copy of the book isn't sold here in North America, etc. So I feel like young black women's voices are voices that we desperately need to be hearing right now. And yet they only seem to be being published within their own countries or perhaps within Africa. What do you think needs to happen in order for your work to be published outside of South Africa? Well, I think North American publishers are starting to get interested in South African literature. I mean, in the 2000s, they used to be only interested in West African literature. From my experience, from what I've observed, South African writers weren't really considered. So, right, business Recently, I got an agent through Johannesburg Review of Books. The curator of Johannesburg Review of Books recommended me to the agent. So I think there's that interest now. Agent and publishers are starting to get interested in our work. So that there's, there's improvement, I guess. 
but not enough. Yeah, we've still got a very, very, very long way to go. So something I often say to my creative writing students is, you know, they will begin writing a short story, for example, and I'll read it and I'll go, this is amazing, but it's not just a short story. This is something that should be so much bigger, you know, because the characterization and the themes and it should be expanded. And they always say, oh no, I'm terrified by the thought of writing a novel. It just seems so big and and so much to handle. And I always say to them, just think of each chapter as a short story. It's one short story after the next. They're kind of interconnected. Am I steering them wrong here? Or do you think there's any kind of truth in that? No, you're not. For me, right now, the novel that I'm writing right now, it was based on a short story collection that I've already written. So before I was skeptical about expanding a short story collection, but it's possible if you see the such there's such a short story collection growing from just a short fiction. But yeah, I think that's possible, but there has to be an interest. Like you have to give a hint that something else is going to happen in the next chapter. And then that chapter, something is going to happen. So there has to, you have to interest the reader. You have to keep will them in and keep them as they read the story. So I think that's the trick with novels. But with short stories, you know that every word matters and is going to end at under 5,000 words so you have to keep that in mind that you have to, it has to be short and straight to the point and everything needs to be covered but in novel you can just relax spread your wings and explore the story in full but in short story collect I mean short stories you have to be constructed and yet keep the reader and each of your short stories felt to me like they could have been expanded into novels because yeah. you know I read each of your stories and I was like oh my god I love this person I love this character I love the setting and then I was like, oh, now it's over. I wish I, I wish I had more of this as well. <laughs> Which of your three three stories in that collection would you say were your favorites? And can you tell us a bit about each of them? I know it's difficult. It's like saying, Kletso, choose yeah. your favorite child. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the first three that I'll say that I enjoyed writing more in Papa's name which is the third short story in the collection. Because of the setting, I started in Linyenge, which is my home township. And everything was so familiar and I was laughing the entire time that I was writing it. So that was fun. And then there's Monkeys, which is linked to in Papa's name because of the setting as well. It's set in Tanini, which is a town nearby my own township. The third story, I'll say, I'll say Becoming a God, which is speculative fiction, but I really loved the character. She's queer. She's very vulnerable. So yeah, I enjoyed writing her. And the queer characters in South African literature or African literature as well, it's not something you see often because the issue that I have in South Africa in terms of, of that is this existence of something called corrective rape. So, yeah. and again, this speaks to the misogyny of the culture that, you know, if a woman is openly gay, it's viewed as the rejection of the penis and therefore what's going to fix her is, yeah. is being correctively raped. Just the term enrages me, absolutely. So, yeah. so it's so important for young queer Black women to see themselves in literature, to see themselves represented in literature. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, 
you exploring that theme as well was was absolutely wonderful. It was wonderful to see in the collection. Thank you. Haletsa Mapai, you look for her, Google her and, and you will you will find her work. If you could recommend other African writers, not necessarily South African writers, do you have like top three that, that you recommend whose work we should also be seeking out? Who would you recommend? I recommend Rishi Gates Maneza. She's South African as well. She's a friend of mine. She writes really, really well. I'm like jealous of her writing. She has a book recently which just got published. It's called uh, Scatterlings. It won the Jakana Media debut book and um there's innocent chizarem ilo they are uh, nigerian they won the commonwealth short story prize last year Rondora, she's zimbabwean she's a poet her collection was released in 2019 so yeah those are the three writers that i'm really excited about and hope everybody discovers and read and that's it for today's episode if you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.